Lord, turn our hearts from the things that distract us, that seem enticing or interesting or fun and yet are not of you but of the world. By your Holy Spirit, draw us to yourself to be more in love with you, to be more grateful every day for what Jesus has done for us and to be more amazed by your holiness and your love and your grace for all of our days. We thank you that we can meet together now and hear the word read. Be with Duncan and anoint him as he brings his message, your message to us. And just like the reading that we will hear in a moment, I pray that the message that he gives and your reading will cut us quick to the heart as we see your gift of life through the cross and that your spirit will stir each one of us to want to love and serve you more each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were, were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily who were being saved. Uh, what a passage, eh? Um, well, let's dive in. Last week we thought about waiting. Uh, maybe you've been thinking about that, how you are go at waiting. Some of us are okay of it, some of us hate it. This week, we're kind of flipping to the opposite extreme and we're thinking about how you respond to things changing. How do you respond to change? Again, some of us love it. You can't get enough of it. You're just a change machine. Others of us hate it. We just want everything to stay the same all the time. Uh, what's really interesting is in these opening chapters of Acts 
is that that time of waiting at the end of chapter 1 turns into a dramatic time of change by the time you get to the end of chapter 2. Now, if you are one of those people who just loves change, uh, you'll need to be careful you don't just dive into change for change's sake. That can be a bit of a recipe for chaos and dysfunction. Uh, It's important to see that there's a particular kind of change in view here. That's what we're going to go into today. But if you're someone who just hates change, who just wants things to, to stay comfortable and familiar at all costs, that's something that you're going to have to work through with God. Because the risen Lord Jesus is in the change business. His unchanging purpose is to bring genuine, deep change, to transform his people here and now, eventually to transform the whole creation as he brings everything under his lordship. So to put it kind of directly, Jesus wants to change you, to transform your life. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, whether you're not yet a Christian, Jesus wants to transform your life. Uh, We've tried to capture this in our own vision statement. It flashed up before, but our, our prayerful desire is to see lives transformed by the good news of Jesus throughout the Flurio region. Um, Because that is what the risen and ascended Jesus is doing. It's what he's been doing ever since the events of what we're looking at today, these events of Acts chapter 2. So let's just um, get our minds in gear with where we're up to in the story. Uh, Perhaps you haven't been with us until now, and this will help you to get up to speed. Uh, Acts opens with the risen King Jesus teaching his apostles all about his kingdom. Uh, telling them to wait for the gift of his spirit. So Jesus ascends to his father's side, but he hasn't abandoned his people. Remember that? He's like that coach going up into the grandstand. He's no longer on the pitch, but he's more in control than ever, directing, arranging things according to his plan until he returns. And he does do what he promised. He does send the promise of his, Holy, his promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this great moment of unstoppable fulfillments of the plans and purposes of God. We saw that last week. What we're going to see in this passage is the impact that that outpouring of the Spirit had on this group of people that God transformed in such a beautiful, incredible, and actually a pretty confronting way as well, as we're going to see. So let's dive in. Um, the passage will come up on the screen, but helpful to have the Bible open in front of you if you've got one there, just to sort of flick your eyes around where we're up to as well. So we're picking up today where we left off last week at the end of Peter's speech in verse 36. And remember his speech, he's filled with the Spirit, and what does he do? He talks all about Jesus. His speech is all about him, and he ends with this, 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So who's he talking to here? He's talking to this gathering of Israel, um, this uh, all the house of Israel, faithful Israelites who are in Jerusalem for this festival, uh, who've come from all across the known world. And Peter says, the fulfilment of all your hopes, all the promises is now here. 
God's promise to restore his people, to fill them with his spirit, to forgive their sins and through them to bring his blessing to every nation on earth. That promise is being fulfilled here and now through Jesus, the Lord, their promised Messiah. The problem for these guys was that Jesus... Well, a lot of the people gathered there just seven weeks earlier, they had been crying out for his death. You see the problem there? This crowd gathered, a lot of them, just seven weeks earlier. They were the ones crying, crucify him. Uh, And even those who weren't there in person, so there's lots of people from all over here, but sort of Peter sweeps them up in this too. They shared a a common rejection of Jesus as their Messiah before his crucifixion. So imagine being there in this crowd and realising as Peter spoke that you have just made the biggest stuff up of your life, right? Like, I mean, each of us at some level has made some pretty bad mistakes, done stupid stuff, sometimes wicked stuff. And maybe you've had that gut-wrenching guilt and shame being cut so deep it goes right to your heart. Um, that's what's sort of going on for this, this representative of, of Israel, this, this group gathering of the house of Israel here. Uh, verse 37, when the people heard this, Naomi mentioned it earlier, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And, they cut to the heart. Notice how their sorrow here is it's just so different to how we often express our, our sorrow today. In our world, apolog- our, our apologising is just so often so shallow, isn't it? We say, I'm sorry you were offended by what I did. Ever heard that? Just, if you ever watch a sports person who's been caught out by... That's generally what they'll say. I'm sorry you were, people were offended by what I did. Which is just another way of saying, I'm not really sorry, but I know that this is what I have to say. (laughs) Um, The problem is really with them. Uh, Or sometimes we're only sorry because we got found out. Um, Otherwise, we would have quite happily continued doing what we were doing. We're not really sorry for the sin itself. We're sorry for the consequences of being found out. Or maybe we're sorry for what we did, but we really want to keep reminding people all the reasons why we got there, all the ways we've been hurt in the past that sort of minimise our own wrongdoing. Imagine being in that crowd as Peter proclaims this. Jesus, whom you crucified, is actually your Lord and Messiah. And imagine kind of responding with, look, I'm really sorry you were offended by me crying out for your death, O oh Lord. You, know, like, you couldn't imagine, you can't imagine that, can you? Or, look, I know I cheered on the soldiers as they drove nails through your hands and thrust a spear into your sides. But it was just a one-off thing. I'm really a good person. And if you knew how hard my life has been, you would, have, you would see that. Can you see how that kind of shallow, self-justifying sorrow is not at all what's going on here? The spirit of the living and holy God cuts through all of that and leaves people 
utterly without excuse. They are cut to the heart, completely exposed, and they don't even try to justify themselves, not even a little bit. All they can do is cry out with Peter, to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, what relief. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What a transformation. 3,000 people. I'm trying to get my head around how they were baptized. It must have been mass baptisms in the pools in in Jerusalem. 3,000 people heard Peter's message. They were cut to the heart by their sin. But they didn't stay there. They didn't stay in that state of exposure, being cut open. They repented. Repentance just, it means to turn around Uh, to stop heading one way and to turn to another. That's why repentance and faith always go together. They're kind of hand in hand throughout Acts and throughout the New Testament. So when there's only one of them mentioned, like here, you can always assume the other is there as well. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from your sin in in godly sorrow and faith is turning to Jesus in humble trust turning from your sin to him. This crowd had a particular thing they had to repent of, right? It wasn't just called to repent of the bad things you've done in your life. They had a particular thing that Peter called them to repent of. They they didn't recognize their Messiah. In fact, they crucified him. But uh, in, in the bigger picture of the Bible... There is a real way in which actually all of us, whether we were there in the crowd, Jewish people or Gentiles today, every person actually, in a very real sense, stands with them as those who crucified Jesus, who also called out for his death. We saw earlier, even among this crowd, there were people who weren't actually there, um, but they shared in this guilt, in, in this... And, and perhaps, you know, they would have known of Isaiah's prophecy, now seeing it fulfilled in Jesus, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced. For my transgressions, he was crushed for my iniquity. The punishment that brought me peace was on him. As Paul would later write to both Jews and Gentiles in his letter to the Romans, God shows his love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you and me, we can rightly sing, you know that great song, How Deep the Father's Love? There's that line in it that says, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The great unstoppable transformation that happened on this day of Pentecost started with the Spirit of God opening people's eyes to that fact, piercing their hearts with that reality. So I just want to pause before we keep going and ask you, have you been pierced to the heart? Not just because you've done some bad stuff and caused offence to someone, but because God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, that it was your sin that he willingly took on himself and that held him there on the cross. Is the spirit of the living God through the sword of his word, cutting into you. Now, if he is, please don't resist him. Please don't resist him. And if he isn't, ask him to. Because it is his severe mercy to do so. He wants to transform you. And that starts with repentance If you're already a Christian, you don't move on from a repentant heart. You don't move on to, you know, being someone who was repentant, but now you move on to earning your place with God in your own steam. You are always and only ever an unworthy receiver of the most wonderful grace and mercy in the gospel. But for those who aren't yet Christian, maybe uh, we love having you here. Maybe you're here exploring Jesus. Maybe you're just visiting. We are so glad for that. Or maybe you're someone who's been with us for a while, maybe even years. But you know that you haven't, you haven't actually repented in this way. Uh, if that's you, it's actually a really dangerous position to be in. I reckon just in every church that I've ever been in, There have been long-term, unrepentant, unsaved people. And the danger is that you come because you like the community or the routine or the interesting ideas and morals or just being part of something bigger than yourself. And you kind of think that if there is a God, he'll see your church going as a bit of a bonus and you'll be fine. My friend, you will not be fine. If that's you, you are, you are, along with the rest of humanity, under the just judgment of the holy God. So repent. Be saved out of this wicked generation, this world that is so stuck in selfishness and pride. Be cut to the heart by your sin. Don't resist the Spirit's sword. Turn from it 
and turn to Jesus in faith. Can I urge you, don't put that off. Do it, if you haven't, do it now, do it today. Because the holy and righteous God is also the God of all grace who has made a way for you to be saved, who has taken on himself your sin in Jesus Christ and calls you to receive his free gift of forgiveness and to receive his Holy Spirit. And not only that, can I urge you, if you haven't already, be baptised. How great to see those photos from earlier in the year. A baptism is a sign Jesus gave us. It's an outward physical sign. It's a lot of water gets splashed around. Um, but that outward sign is a pointer to the inner spiritual change that Jesus has brought about in you if you turn to him in repentance and faith. Uh, and if there is someone here in that position, I would love to talk to you. Um, come and talk to me. I can wait around here afterwards, down here for a bit. I'd love to talk to you or make a time to chat to me later on. Please get in touch. Uh, okay, I've spent a bit of time on that first point. We are going to move quicker through the rest. So if you're looking at your outline and if you're outline watcher, don't stress. Uh, we're going to move a bit quicker. Um, this transformation didn't stop with this 3,000 people just repenting and being baptised. See what happens. This transformation keeps going. Jesus wants to transform his people into a... He wants to lead them into a whole new way of being human. That's what church is meant to be, actually. A whole new way of being human in this world. Little, a little outpost of the glorious new creation breaking into the present. Gatherings of people devoted to Jesus and learning to walk his way together. So you see that in verse 42. Let's... Um, Let's skim through these. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. Now, sometimes we think of devotion as like a temporary emotion, like a young man with puppy dog eyes devoted to his lady. You know, um, But this word isn't that kind of short-term intense thing. It has a sense of persevering commitment, a slow, powerful burn more than a flash in the pan. Right? That's the kind of devotion in view here. And the first thing we're told that this spirit-filled community devoted themselves to is the apostles' teaching. I think that's so helpful. Sometimes um, Christians can kind of split these two things and talk about either being a spirit-filled church or a teaching church. That kind of division makes absolutely no sense in the light of Acts 2. The first sign that the Spirit of God was powerfully at work in this new church was that they longed to be taught by the apostles. They were a learning church. Now, that takes humility. It takes a fundamental attitude that says to God, I come to your word not to prop up what I already believe, but to learn, to be changed in my thinking and in my heart, to learn more and more, to line up my life more and more with your word. That's, that's why we in our church, in Sundays and home groups, we Work hard at trying to understand the Bible well and properly. A spirit-filled believer devoted to God's word won't come looking for a few out-of-context verses to sort of back up their own hobby horse. They won't come with a proud heart that says, look, I know that's what the apostles taught, but we know better today. 
No, their attitude will be humility before the word. Eagerness to understand it rightly and change in its light. And what a beautiful picture there is here in Acts. This community who, who this is, they're unified in this. They, they long to be changed and to learn and to grow into maturity under the apostles' teaching. Hearing God's word through his apostles day by day in the temple courts. Now we can't be there in person, but we've got that, we've got something better actually. We've got the New Testament, the complete um, revelation of the apostles' teaching. We've got the Old Testament inspired by God through the prophets. So this, this is a community devoted to God's word, but this spirit-filled community is also devoted to each other. Notice that, keep reading verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We'll come back to that word fellowship. Uh, but as you read on in the rest of this um, chapter, you see this played out. So skim down to verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Ah, oh, how good is that? What a beautiful thing. Uh, that phrase, the breaking of bread, uh, some have read it as talking about communion or the Lord's Supper. I think that's possible. I, I probably lean another way. I, I probably think it's more likely that it just means they ate together a lot. Um, not a lot rides on that, but I, I, th I think that's what's going on. See, there's something really significant about eating together, isn't there? about meals together. You see it all through the Bible. And here in this new community, this restored kingdom, this people united in Christ, a key way they expressed their unity was through eating together in each other's homes, spending time hanging out with each other. And I just love that phrase, right? With, they didn't do it out of a sense of duty or kind of begrudgingly or... Uh, just because they'd been asked, they did it with glad and sincere hearts. Glad and sincere hearts. That's the kind of community Jesus is creating through his spirit. Uh, there's more going on here, though. Back to that word fellowship in verse 42. Uh, it's a bit of a Christian-y word, isn't it? Like, uh, we don't use it in any other context, the word fellowship. Um, I think we often assume that it kind of just means what we were just talking about, hanging out together. It's actually a much stronger thing than that, though. Uh, the, the word behind it is one that you might have heard before, koinonia. And it has a sense, not just of spending time together, it has a sense of sharing, of, of partnership together, of using the gifts God has given you for the good of others, of, of seeing yourself partners with one another in his church. It's much stronger thing than a cup of tea after church, as good as that is. Um, it's a deep commitment to one another that expresses itself in sacrificial partnership. So that's what you see here. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Down in verse 44, all the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Amazing. Uh, that's the sort of thing you do for your family, right? And I think that's the point, actually. And this is God's new family. Uh, but it, it's just, I kind of need to mention this as an aside, it's not talking about a political system here. So I don't, there's, not a, there's no sort of justification for socialism or anything like that here. You see, the key thing is this, it's not an enforced thing. 
It's freely given generosity. And it's clear as you keep reading, private property wasn't done away with. People still owned their homes and they, you know, that's what they met, they met in. But what you see here is an amazing spirit of generosity in response to the needs of their brothers and sisters. It was such a strong partnership together that it was unthinkable that anyone in their community would go in need. Which meant, right, they actually had to know one another enough to know what the needs were. And they had to trust one another enough to share their needs. Sometimes needs don't get met um, because we don't share them and, and are willing to receive help. Okay, amazing transformation and all of it was fueled by their new relationship with the living God made possible through Jesus. So there's this strong sort of Godward thread through this passage too, right? Maybe you picked it up in verse 42. They also devote themselves to prayer, to calling on God, to act according to his promises. And in verse 33, they were filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. I take it they're actually filled with awe towards God who was doing these things through his apostles. It's not as if the apostles were doing those kind of in their own power. It was God doing it through them, and it amazed everyone looking, out, looking on. The people were amazed. Down in verse 47, they were praising God. See what's going on here? It was God who was doing all of this. He was the one transforming their lives. You see that at the end of that verse, it was the Lord himself, the risen Lord Jesus, who was adding to their number as more and more people heard the gospel repented of their sin, and turned to him in faith. So five amazing ways that God brought about rich transformation on that day. So how do you, how do you respond to this, um, this picture? I reckon for some of us we can feel a bit heavy because um, it's just kind of it's too idealistic. Uh, it, can, it can make, I've noticed some, some Christians a little, kind of actually a little resentful that their experience isn't like this all the time. Uh, it's not uncommon occasionally for people to say, we've just got to get back to the early church before there are any institutions or organisation, just be in the spirit. The problem with that is you only have to read on a few chapters before you see the apostles start to put institutions in place. So you, you read on to chapter 6, we'll read it in a few weeks. Um, they realise they need to create a structure a ministry structure. And you actually see that more and more as the church grows and expands, this necessary putting in place of institutions. It's not a bad thing, and it's a necessary thing. And so there is a uniqueness to this picture in Acts 2, right? It's a unique moment. There's 3,000, well, 3,120, if you add the originals. 3,120 believers all together at this intense time for this festival, you know, they're on that sort of holiday time, a festival time, so they've got the time to do that daily, meeting together and every day in that way. Yes, it's, it's, it is a kind of one-off thing, uh, a unique moment in God's history, in his, in his plan. But at the same time, I just... It, we can give it a red-hot crack, can't we? I mean, it would be wrong to just write this off as some impossible ideal... We are in a different situation. We live in different times and all of that. 
But the risen Lord is still transforming his world in this way. These are still God's purposes for his church. His purposes for you if you're a Christian. That's why as a church we've tried to line up our own church around these five things that you can see there on your handout. Um, We've conveniently captured them in five words starting with M. We stole the names from other people but... The ideas come straight from here. God is transforming the world through his gospel mission. As he calls people from every place to repentance and faith and calls his people to join him in in that mission. God is transforming his people into maturity, being devoted to his word, into membership in in his church family, into ministry as we serve one another sacrificially. And to magnification, as we magnify his holy name together, as we live in this awe-filled praise and dependent prayer. So we've tried to kind of organise ourselves around these things, um, our, our own structures. And structures are important, but they're kind of like a trellis in your garden. Um, they're, they're important for the vine to grow on, but it's actually the vine that's the real thing. The structures are only there to help it. And I hear all the time, actually, of unstructured, radical, amazing generosity that's been organised, apart I had, that I had nothing to do with. Um, wonderful. I hear of glad and sincere meals being had across our church family. I hear of people organising themselves to pray and praise God and read his word together. So praise God for that and let's pray for more of it. But I just want to finish by calling us back to verse 36 again, that we finished with last week and we'll finish it with again today. See how this is sort of the crux of this chapter? Um, That it was this point that cut them to the heart and that God's spirit used to then transform them in this remarkable way. So be assured of this. Will you be assured of this today? This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah, the saving King who gave his life to bring you forgiveness to give you his Holy Spirit, to transform you in his unstoppable power into this kind of a people. So are you assured of that? Then repent, be baptised, devote yourself to Jesus and his purposes for his people to the glory of God the Father through the power of his Spirit. Let's pray. Our great God, we, we do pray for each of us today that you might in your great mercy pierce our hearts again or maybe even for the first time may we never move into a proud and arrogant relationship with you we know that on our own we are far from you we are under your judgment we are those who are actually at at war with you. 
We thank you so much for the precious gift of your spirit who transforms our hearts and minds, who leads us in repentance to turn from all of that, to come out from under your judgment and to come into your wonderful light, to turn to Jesus and who transforms us as his people, as his church. So do that, we pray, more and more. Help us this day to repent, to trust you, to live in this devoted way. Forgive us when we do wrong. Thank you that we always have forgiveness. Fill us with your spirit so that, we might pick, that you might pick us up again and we continue in this path. And so we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.